Would you open your Bibles to the book of Jude? It's at the end of the New Testament. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then Jude, and then the Revelation. We're going to be looking at the book of Jude over the next two weeks. I think it's a, an important message for us. An important message that's so relevant in our culture. We're going to talk about contending for the faith in the last days. And really it is contending for the faith. It's not contending against the culture, it's contending for the faith in the midst of a wicked culture. The book of Jude is written by Jude, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude is a slave of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, and a brother of James. And we know that this James is the lead elder of the church of Jerusalem. We even see in the Gospel of Mark, verse six, chapter 6, verse 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas, or Jude, and Simon. So Jude, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the brother of James, he humbly doesn't say of himself as the half-brother of Jesus, but that's who it is. And he writes, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. To the church, the called of God, the beloved of God, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. Most scholars believe he's writing to a singular church. He's, this is relevant for all believers. He's writing to believers, and this is what the Holy Spirit says to us as believers. So if you would please stand, and let's read Jude verses 1 through 4, and then we'll begin our exposition. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who, per, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we ask for your help today. We ask that your Holy Spirit would illumine the text for us plant it deep in our lives, bring forth beautiful fruit for the glory of our Christ. And Lord, we pray that that you would be so merciful today to sinners, that you would grant eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would bring forth even some today from darkness into light by the power of the gospel. We pray this In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Verse 3 is the key verse. It's the reason or it's the purpose that Jude is writing and verse 4 gives us the reason why he's writing. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, beloved brothers and sisters, I just wanted to write to you in glory in the gospel. Just glory in the gospel together to tell you everything about our common salvation. And yet, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to... to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And here's the reason. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. They were sneaky. They were deceptive. They've crept into the church unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. I want you to note that phrase right there, ungodly people who, perv- who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. See, the whole book is about contending for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints in the last days. There's an urgency. So I want to break it down over the next two weeks into seven points for us. We'll look at three today in verses 1 through 16, and then four next week in verses 17 to 25. So let me give you the outline over the next two weeks. As I said, the whole book is about contending for the faith. So in order to contend for the faith in these last days, you need to, number one, glory in your identity, verses one and two. Number two, treasure the gospel and its implications, verses three to four. Number three, know for certain that Jesus will deal with the ungodly, verses five to 16. Number four, remember the predictions of the apostles, 
verses 17 to 19. Number five, prioritize an intimate walk with God. Verses 20 to 21. Number six, be merciful towards those who have been tossed to and fro. Verses 22 to 23. And finally, number seven, keep your focus on the one who is able to preserve you and to present you blameless to himself with great joy. That's where we're going. God is able to keep you and to present you to himself blameless at the last day with great joy. So we're going to look at the first three of those today. In order to contend for the faith in these last days, you need to, number one, glory in your identity. Look at verses one to two. As we said, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, he's writing to to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Called, beloved, and kept. And what we see in the New Testament, the, the whole of the New Testament, when we see that word called, this is not, it doesn't just mean invited. Now the calling in the New Testament is the calling unto salvation. It is the effectual call unto salvation. It's, it's that call that is demonstrated beautifully even when Jesus spoke into the tomb of Lazarus and raised him from the dead and said, Lazarus, come out. That's the picture. It's the powerful call of God to a sinner unto salvation. It's not just inviting people to be saved. That's what we do. We give the general call. But God's call is effectual. It does something. It raises the dead. The Scripture says we were brought forth by the word of truth. We were caused to be born again unto a living hope. We were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And, and this Word is the gospel that was preached to you. That's how we were brought forth. We were called through the gospel. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is the effectual call of God. It means to those who are called. In other words, to believers who are saved by grace through faith. It was not of their own doing. It was the gift of God. And they were called unto salvation. He's, he's speaking to believers and if you want to contend for the faith in these last days, you need to know your identity. You need to glory in the fact that you were called unto salvation. And it was the work of God. You were, this work was wrought by the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. You are the called of God. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 
Chapter 1, verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is of Him. You were called, you were effectually called unto salvation, and you came. He says you're called, you're beloved in God the Father. You're the Father's treasured possession. He has set His love and affection on you, not because you did anything, because you were impressive. He loved you because He loved you. This is His sovereign good pleasure His love is a special covenant love upon His children. I was telling the senior adults this past Thursday, this is not just the general love of God. God loves all people, amen? He causes the rain to fall on the the just and the unjust. He has wonderful blessings for all people, even the, the blessing of marriage in all cultures for the good of humankind. But what... Jude is talking about is not God's general love for all people. He's talking about a special covenant love towards the people of God where He set His love and affection upon you. And I love the people of God. I love our church family. But brothers and sisters, there's a special love that I have for my wife and my children. It's just different. I love all people with a general love, but the love that I have for my children and my wife is a special love, a covenant love. That's the kind of love that God has for His children, a special love, a covenant love. It's unbreakable. Nothing could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Glory in your identity. You are the called, the beloved in God the Father. And notice, you are kept for or by Jesus Christ. And kept for Jesus Christ. God saves you by His grace and He keeps you by His grace. Nothing could separate you from God. No one can snatch you out of His hand. And Peter tells us that we are kept by His power until the day of salvation, until the return of Christ, until we see Him face to face. We're kept. He's the keeper of His people. Those who have been called by God and trusted in Christ Jesus, beloved by God the Father, 
are kept for Jesus Christ. And that's who we are. That's our identity. And if we want to contend for the faith in the midst of a wicked culture, we need to know who we are and glory in it. Secondly, if in order to contend for the faith in these last days, you need to treasure the gospel and its implications. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The word contend means to struggle in behalf of. It sounds like in the original language our word for agonize. We struggle in behalf of, we agonize for the sake of, we fight with all of our might on behalf of, on behalf of the gospel, on behalf of the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. One Greek-English lexicon says, it is effort expended in a noble cause, and the noble cause is to keep the body of doctrine, the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints, pure, unperverted. But not only the body of doctrine, all of the implications, all of the moral imperatives that are consistent with the gospel. You see, the problem is that certain people had crept in unnoticed, who were perverting the grace of our God into sensuality and denying the authority of King Jesus. So it's, it's not just the body of doctrine. It's all of the moral imperatives that go with the gospel. You see, we were called out of darkness into His marvelous light to declare the excellencies of Christ. And we live in a manner that is consistent with the excellencies of Christ. And that goes with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we've been redeemed for good works. We've been redeemed unto holiness, set apart unto holiness. So this body of doctrine about Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, that every sinner who puts their trust in him has eternal life, 
that Christ was crucified, raised, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, that He's ruling and reigning. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and He's coming again. Believers, wait for that day, the blessed hope of the believer, the return. And until that day, we live differently. The gospel has implications, imperatives that are consistent with the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. See, there were some who had crept into the church snuck into the church who were deceptive, who were teaching that you could be saved by grace and then you could live according to your own desires and pleasures. Paul would say, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, or by no means, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So we've been saved to live a new kind of life, a holy life, in that which is consistent with the gospel of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 2 to 8, Paul says this, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The faith was being challenged in the first century, and it's been challenged in every century. And right now in these last days, it is being challenged again and again. And I would say that one of the the biggest challenges to the faith is the sexual ethic of the culture. And when the church adopts that sexual ethic by teachers who have crept in you will see churches become not churches at all. We drove past one church yesterday flying a rainbow flag. Now, this is a church flying a rainbow flag, not the culture. Again, we don't contend against the culture. We contend for the faith to preserve, to protect, 
so that the faith is not perverted. And yet, in many mainline denominations today, the faith has been perverted to include a kind of licentiousness that you can live any way that you want to. in a way that is not in line with the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And we have seen denominations veer off and go astray. We have seen churches become just social clubs because they've denied the gospel. They've denied our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. They've denied His authority in the way that we are to live. And I would say that unless we treasure the gospel and all of its moral implications handed down to us in the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, the apostolic teaching, the apostolic doctrine, we will not be able to contend for the faith, to protect the faith that's been handed down to us. Treasure the gospel and its implications. Not just the facts, the objective truths of the gospel, but the moral imperatives of the gospel. And finally, number three, in order to contend for the faith in these last days, you need to know for certain that Jesus will deal with the ungodly. Verses 5 to 16. Now, if we look at 5 to 16 it is possible for us to miss the forest for the trees. To get bogged down and miss the point. Jude is giving us three Old Testament examples and then he gives us an example from first century writings or the apocryphal writings that everyone was aware of. They were well-known Uh, pieces of literature in the first century. So he gives an example there. And then he gives us three more biblical examples and then another example from a well-known literature that was popular in the first century. Very much like Paul does in Acts chapter 17, quoting the poets. You, You know what your poets say. Know for certain that Jesus will deal with the ungodly. What I want you to do is, is if you've got a pen, in verse 4, underline ungodly people. And then go down to verse 8 and underline these people. And I like to draw in my Bible, so I draw a line from ungodly people to these people. And verse 10, but these people, underline that again. And then go up to verse 12, these are hidden reefs. And then go down to verse 14. It was about, it was also about these, underline these right there. And then in verse 15, convict all the ungodly, underline ungodly, and then ungodliness, and then ungodly way, and then ungodly sinners. And then verse 16, these are grumblers. And it goes all the way down to verse 19. It is these who cause divisions. He's talking about ungodly people. And we know that there are 
teachers who are teaching this. In verse 12, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. There's teachers who have crept in, gained an influence in the body of Christ. Right now, there are teachers on the internet that are gaining an incredible influence in teaching false doctrine about a sexual ethic that is of the world, but lining it up with the gospel and saying it's okay. And of course, it tickles people's ears because that's what they want to hear. They want to say, I can follow Christ and live this way. And now they've got teachers telling them it's okay to live that way. So look in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people, who delivered a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Did you catch that? Remember, it was the rock, Jesus, that led the people through the wilderness. They all drank of the rock, which was Christ, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. But Paul says this also, when he says the rock was Christ, he goes down in verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Jude says that was Christ. Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He, Jesus, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire Know for certain that Jesus will deal with the ungodly. It was Christ who kept the angels, the rebellious angels, in chains until the day of judgment. It was Jesus who delivered a people out of Egypt and then judged them for their unbelief their pride, their disobedience, their rejection as God is king, the rejection of God's authority. In Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 and following, the Lord spoke to Moses and, and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel which they grumble against me, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Yephune, and Joshua, the son of Nun. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do all of this 
to this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me in the wilderness. They shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. The writer to the Hebrews says that they died in their unbelief. They heard the good news. And they rejected the good news and died in their unbelief. And Jude says it was Jesus who judged the people of Israel in the wilderness and who kept the angels. Most scholars think it's referring to Genesis chapter 6 when the sons of God, or that's a biblical term for angels, when they came and on the earth and went into women and did not stay in their boundaries and says that Jesus has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, under the judgment of the great day. And then Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is an encouragement to believers, contend for the faith knowing that Jesus is going to deal with the ungodly. That should be an encouragement. You don't have to fight against the ungodly. You don't have to have vengeance against the ungodly. It's no, Jesus will deal with it. But it's also a warning. It's a warning to those who are in the church who claim Christ but are living like the ungodly. It's a warning. Know for certain that Jesus will deal with the ungodly. Don't presume upon the grace of Jesus. Don't treat him as unholy. Know for certain that Jesus will deal. And he says, Yet in like like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. He's referring to an apocryphal writing called the Assumption of Moses, kind of referring to things that they know, literature and they know, that they know. Say, don't, don't be like these people, be like Michael. Contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion, again giving three biblical examples, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Rebellion, unbelief, pride, disobedience, a rejection of God's authority. And these, speaking of the false prophets or the the false teachers, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars 
for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These people are headed towards destruction. And this destruction has been reserved for them forever. Verse 14 says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodlessness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. He's quoting from 1 Enoch, an apocryphal writing that everybody knew about, saying that even outside the Scripture, everybody knows the ungodly will be judged. God will deal with the ungodly. In verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The point of all of this together is that we are to know for certain that Jesus will deal with the ungodly. It should be an encouragement to us to not take it in our hands, but it also should be a warning to us to live holy lives to live in a manner consistent with the gospel. This is so important for us in this culture. It's so easy for us to get caught up in everything that's happening out there and, and want to fight against the culture. Want to get into the argument, want to argue with the culture. And yet Jude is saying, no, no, contend for the faith. To make sure that in your life and in your church and in your community that you are contending for the purity of the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Don't let anybody pervert it. Don't pervert it yourself. Don't let anybody change it. Don't let anybody water it down. Let's labor with all of our might for a noble cause, and that is to hold fast to the beautiful gospel of our Lord Jesus and all of its implications, all of the moral imperatives. Treasure the gospel. Glory in your identity. And that's how we're going to contend for the faith in these last days. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you'd give us the grace that we need to walk in your ways in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Lord, give us the grace that we need to follow you, to not veer off, to not be deceived, or but to treasure the gospel, to treasure our calling, to know our identity and glory in it. Lord, we know that it is you who keep us. So keep us close, Lord Jesus. Keep us close to you. Deliver us from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Give us strength and perseverance as we press on in these days. Lord, I pray that you would encourage the Christian today reminding them of their identity and reminding them that you will judge the ungodly. 
but also reminding them that we are called to a holy calling, that you would give us that grace to obey you. And Lord, for those who don't know Christ yet, who may know about Jesus and may know about the gospel, but have never come to a saving relationship with Christ, they've never turned away from their sins and put their trust in Jesus to be reconciled with God, to be justified. Lord, would you grant salvation today and we'll give you the praise for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.